I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So roosters don't just crow at sunrise. They crow for a whole host of reasons, or no reason at all. Last year in northeast India, with the tribal people of Nagaland, I knew beforehand that everyone there gets up at 4.30 a.m. and goes to work as soon as possible after that. I also knew that there would be chickens everywhere, anywhere that I went in India, city, countryside, small town, university campus, there were chickens. But for some reason I forgot that where there are chickens, there are also roosters. And I learned in Nagaland that roosters can adapt to human patterns. So Nagaland roosters crow in the pitch dark at precisely 4.30 a.m. And everybody gets up and gets ready and goes off to work. The roosters crow again at dawn. And so the roosters would wake me up at 4.30, and then I would either get back to sleep or just lie there waiting for dawn to hear them again. I was once part of a gathering that included an outing to a farm and for, for a barbecue. And the president of our association stood up to welcome us and to talk about the farm and to say grace. And as he started to speak in his preacher voice, a rooster crowed. We all laughed. He started to speak again. The rooster crowed again. He said, let us pray. And the rooster crowed again. It would have been perfect if his name had been Peter. But it wasn't. But sometimes a rooster will crow because he has a message from God to deliver. Now Peter is scared. It's Thursday night, and he's afraid for Jesus' life, and he's afraid for his own life. The others ran away. He dares to follow. Maybe he shouldn't have, but he, he couldn't stay away. But he looks on, and Jesus won't defend himself. Jesus is helpless, and so is he. But what is he supposed to do? He comes close to a charcoal fire to warm his hands, and Someone says, aren't, aren't you? No. And then a little while after, someone else comes and says, look at him, look at him. Aren't you one of those? No. And then a third time, someone comes to him and says, don't you follow him, that one inside? No, I do not know the man, he says. And then the rooster crows. Jesus said it would. Three times. No. No. I don't know him. And now just a week or so has passed. Jesus risen alive, risen and alive, asks Peter, do you love me? Three times. And the first, when Jesus speaks to him, he calls Peter by his full name. Now, I don't know about you, but I stand up and pay close attention when somebody calls out my full name. Simon, son of John. What am I in for now? Simon, some son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
then feed my lambs. A second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, tend my sheep. A third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Then feed my sheep and follow me even to death on a cross. Now this scene is sometimes called the rehabilitation of Peter. And to me it feels more like torturing an already tortured soul just a little bit. And remember this all happens near a charcoal fire like the one where Peter stood warming his hands when he denied knowing Jesus three times. I think for the rest of his life Peter avoided charcoal fires and jumped every time he heard a rooster crow. But it makes me wonder. Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you, come on back. Does Peter believe he's forgiven? Does Peter believe he is accepted? And can Peter forgive himself? You know, only God can forget forgiven sins. Ordinary mortals like you and me struggle to let go of the burdens that God takes off our backs. And Peter's memory and his pain can only make him a better shepherd. Compassionate, forgiving, responsive, and in no position to judge anyone. Blogger Debbie Thomas writes about Jesus' time between the resurrection and the ascension, and he says, she says, Jesus focuses on relationship, on reconciliation, on love. He spends the last days before his ascension delivering his children from fear, despair, self-hatred, and paralysis. He wastes no time on triumphalism or smugness. Even at the height of his power, he chooses humility. He chooses to linger on a lonely beach till dawn, waiting for his hungry children to realize how much they need him. He chooses to ask Peter, an honest and vulnerable-making question about denial, even though the answer might hurt. And Jesus chooses to tend and feed his sheep. I realize preachers like me always say that we can find the risen Jesus alive and with us in this world and that he lives in and through us. And we get away with saying that year after year, not just at Easter. But most of us, including most preachers, have to admit that sightings of Jesus are even more rare than glimpses of Bigfoot. And we can't imagine meeting Jesus on a beach for breakfast. And as far as Jesus living in and through us goes, are we supposed to feel something? And if so, how do we recognize the feeling? And how do we know it's not indigestion? Now maybe, you, maybe you've heard that old gospel song. It goes, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. 
He lives within my heart. But that's not really an answer or enough of an answer, if that's all there is to it. If that's all there is to it, then we either need really, really big hearts or a really small Jesus. And we have to admit, a lot of the old hymns and songs make Jesus really small and make him into kind of a personal possession. And then we read Bible stories like the one we heard today about Saul of Tarsus on his way to Damascus to round up Jesus' people and take them back to Jerusalem and clap them into prison. And flash, Jesus shows up. I'm looking at it right now up in the, up in the, the window in the balcony. Jesus shows up, light and sound, and Saul gets turned inside out and he gets turned around and set on a different path, a path he could never have imagined. Or maybe we see visions like our reading from Revelation, all light and music and sound effects, all praising Jesus, victorious Jesus, worthy Jesus, big Jesus, the Jesus of the last part of Messiah. That reading from Revelation made me want to start to sing some of those choruses because they're the ones that are most fun for bassists to sing. Is Jesus then too big to be believed? So maybe the reason we have trouble digesting the Easter message is that we don't know which Jesus to look for. Should we try to find the, the little Jesus of the syrupy songs? Or should we look for the come down and stomp our enemies, big Jesus? Both of them are very popular today. Or maybe we're not sure where to look for signs of his presence and work. But I think there's some help in two of the Gospel Easter stories. They are the two most popular, most often read. One of them is our Gospel today from John chapter 21. The other is in the Gospel of Luke. And when Luke tells the Easter story, Jesus doesn't appear in the morning in the garden. It's all about words, people, people saying he has, is risen. Jesus shows up first in Luke's gospel when two disciples, brokenhearted, downcast, they've had one hell of a weekend and they have decided not to sit around waiting anymore. They're going home to their home in Emmaus. And while they're walking, they meet a stranger. They have no idea who he is, but somehow they feel safe to pour their hearts out to him. And he is brave enough to correct them, but to point them to scriptures that they already know but haven't put together yet. And after that, they will say that he relit the fire in their hearts, but they still don't recognize him until he goes into their house as an honored guest at their table, takes the bread and breaks it. Supper in Emmaus. And then they know him. Or breakfast on a beach in Galilee. And as he passes them the bread and fish, then they are sure that it is the Lord. So maybe that's why congregations like ours spend so much time eating 
and drinking together. We mark every occasion or no occasion at all with food. Do we believe that Jesus is more likely to be present when we're together enjoying food and fellowship? Is that maybe the reason? We believe he's present in a very particular way when we eat and drink at that table that we call his. And sometimes we sense it and sometimes we don't, but that's okay. But what about the other ordinary things we do? Things we need to do just as much as we need to eat and drink. Things we love to do just as much as we love to get together around a table. Is he with us when we're working? Waiting, walking, weeding, making supper, making love? And what about the beautiful things we do? The loving actions, the ordinary kindnesses that we do without thinking just because. The because is the truth that we really do live in and live out the presence and power of the risen one who is with us whether we recognize him or not who is in our lives whether we feel it or not Jesus is alive in the ordinary so the ordinariness of life and the sacredness of life are the same thing the harder we look for him in places where we would expect to find him the less likely we are to find him. And if we ever dare claim that we have found him and locked him up in our hearts or our churches, we'll discover soon enough that we can't hold him down. All he asks of us is what he asks of Peter. Feed his sheep. Look after his people. Take good care of one another. Love one another as he loves us. That's it. That's it. So may our prayer be that the risen one will open our eyes to the ordinary sacredness of the life we all share, to see the sacred in the ordinary, May the risen one open our hearts so that ordinary kindness, everyday love can flow in and out. And though we may never see him and we're numb to his presence a lot of the time, he is with us. Amen. Glory to God.